In today's episode of Work at Life, we are talking about reframing how we think about stress with Dr. Deborah Gilboa, also known as Dr. G, author of the book From Stress to Resilient. Join us. Welcome to Work at Life. This is a show for everyone who believes that work should be just as fulfilling as life outside of work, and that the way to get there is through building more human workplaces. I'm Maddie Grant, a culture designer and co-founder of a culture consulting firm called Propel, and I'm your co-host alongside my fabulous friend, Sonia Lucina, an organizational psychologist heading up the workforce division at Question Pro. Dr. G, we are so excited to have you here. And stress is a topic we have not yet talked about on this show, unbelievably. Oh. So very <laughs> exciting to dig into this. It's obviously a big one. But why don't you give us a little bit of your background, um, introduce yourself to our listeners first. Thank you, Maddie and Sonia. It's really nice to join you. And I'm going to challenge your premise, because if you've talked about change on your show, then you have <laughs> talked about change. Good point. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, my name is Deborah Gilboa. I'm a family physician. I'm an MD and I see patients at a federally qualified health center. And about, oof, I don't know, five years into practice, I started to notice that there was this gap between what I'd been trained to do, which was to help people recover or prevent illness or injury and being well. And that gap between getting better and being well really concerned me because I wasn't just interested mm -hmm. in getting rid of someone's wrist pain. My job as their family doctor is yes, to make sure there's nothing terrible going on, but also help them live the life they're aiming for. And when I looked at the medical literature, as I had been trained to do when I had a question, what I found is that we called that gap patient resilience, which sounded like a cop-out. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, but wait, what if it's true? What is that? What is patient resilience? And the research that existed at the time, mostly in adults, spoke about resilience in the setting of post-traumatic stress disorder or severe mental illness, which is very interesting, but not completely applicable to most of my patients. So I decided it was time to do some research. And I still practice clinically, but I have spent a lot of the last 10 years really focused on resilience and what it is and how we build it and how you build it in yourself and how you can build it in other people. And I've been lucky enough to do some research with the great folks at Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon University, especially about resilience in the workplace for adult professionals. And so that brings me to you. Fabulous. Oh, God. So, yeah, Dr. Do you have funny. no idea how many questions I have? <laughs> <laughs> So before we um, dig into the many questions that we have, um, Sonia, do you want to talk a little bit about our data point for today? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that we do um, on our show is, you know, as Maddie and I were getting excited to have this conversation, we know each one of us comes from a particular perspective, but we also like to bring the, the larger perspective of the workers around the United States. So um, through Question Pro polls, we run these questions and we ask 300 workers, um, in this case, how much does change in your workplace cause you stress? So what we found is 29% of people said, you know, zero 
to 24% of the time, or I almost never mind having things change at work. So about a third of people saying that. And then slightly more, 33% of people said "Mm, 25% to 49% of the time, less than half the time is a change at work is a stressor for me. Um, Then we had 24% of people say, ah, you know, I would say maybe 50 to 70%, 74% of the time, um, or in other words, often dealing with a change of work causes me stress. And then finally, 14% of people said that 75 to 100% of the time. So every time there is a change, I feel stressed. Um, Dr. G, as an absolute expert in this area, what do you make of this data? Was it surprising to you as what you would expect? <laughs> so what... I noticed about this is that more than a third of people said more than half the time, a change at work is stressful. And I am going to blame a lot of the changes that we have dealt with globally in the last few years on that high number. In most settings, people feel like only changes that, that really threaten them, right? Um, Someone getting fired, they didn't expect to get fired. Uh, changing your payroll system, a total restructure, a merger or acquisition saying, hey, all those things you've been selling, we're throwing those out. You have to sell new things or the schedule that we had, we're changing entirely or where you work, how you work, with whom you work. Those are changes that really can make people feel very unsettled. But a lot of other changes like we're refurbishing the office. We are changing the codes on the front door. We are Um, going to ask you to clock in and out on your phone instead of your computer. Those changes pre-pandemic would have been, for most people, just part of doing business. Not a huge deal. Change is always, to our brain's neurochemistry, change is actually synonymous with stress. Meaning, Mm -hmm. when we find out about a change or the possibility of a change, our brain has certain reflexes where it dumps stress chemicals because, okay, everybody knows that our brains have a million functions. Even while we're just sitting here talking, our brains are taking control of lots of things, but our brains actually only have one job. Do you want to guess what our brain's one job really is? Keep us safe. Keep us alive. alive. That's our brain's job. Mm -hmm. It's to keep us alive. The good news is we are all currently alive. The bad news is all change is suspect. So our brain looks at every single potential change and says, okay, cool, but could we die? And so that question is just to keep us safe. That's all. Could we die? And in an effort to have just a second to figure out if this is dangerous to us, our brain has these reflexes, these three reflexes. Think of them like speed bumps that we have to run over. And for some people, we go over those speed bumps. We go, oh, yeah, speed bumps, no problem. Go right over them and on to figuring out how we're going to navigate the change. And for some people, every time they hit a speed bump, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But it's a little bit cumulative. And the more times you have to go over those same speed bumps, which are, mm-hmm. what could I lose? Can I trust this? And what will be uncomfortable? Those are the mm-hmm. three speed bumps. About every change, even the good stuff. Maddie, you won yeah. the lottery, right? Your brain goes, we won the lottery. Uh oh, what could I lose? Right? Mm-hmm. Could um, is this going to mess up something for me with taxes or my job or my family? Mm-hmm. Are people going to come out of the woodwork? Distrust. 
yeah, but did I only win $2.25? I mean, really? (laughs) Did I really win? And discomfort. Are people going to look at me differently? What is this going to mean in terms of how I normally go on vacation? What? So loss, distrust, and discomfort are just these three speed bumps. And they happen whether it's a new COVID variant or winning the lottery or your phone updating your operating system. Just something really simple, right? The vending machine changing brands. Your brain still goes, what could I lose? Do I trust this? And what's uncomfortable? Even while you might be feeling happy or excited or relieved or proud. So those three speed bumps can really wear on us if we have to go over them over and over and over and over again, especially if they're ones where navigating it isn't so simple, like a new COVID variant, like someone we love is sick, like our job is at risk. And so when people have that experience a lot, they get to a point where they just have change fatigue. And even something as simple as, hey, um, we've got a new cleaning crew So you might notice that the garbage can is right outside the door to your office instead of inside of it on Monday mornings. Don't worry about it. Just pull it inside. For some people, they're like, no, just no. A bridge too far. Cannot move. Nope. Can't move the wastebasket. Mm -hmm. And so that's why these numbers didn't surprise me. But but I think they're really indicative that some people are on their last nerve. Well, so on the the flip side of that, I feel like there's there's an optimistic view of some of this data as well, because the the almost 30 percent or however much it was of people who are um, not not stressed by change. Um, Sonia, keep me honest on the on the number, but it was a decently large number. And um, and it makes me think that we're also maybe sort of, you know, generationally, almost um, more used to change, you know, so we've, we've been talking about how the digital age as, as uh, it is change that is accelerating, right? So with, you know, the internet in the, the early 2000s, and but, and everything since then, it's like, change is faster and faster and faster and, right. and change and isn't new but the rate has really picked up yes rate mm-hmm. has really picked up and then covid is like a, a whole different ball game um yeah. so i definitely agree with you on the cumulative part <laughs> and the change fatigue for sure but i also think that for some people we're more well resilient might be the word but we're more sort of used to it and we're more capable of kind of rolling with it and we need to be you know as a human species right because to keep moving forward because there's no sense of it slowing down in the future right Mm. yeah and there is a um an upside down u sort of curve for not particularly at this moment in time but in general how humans adapt to change where in our adulthood Um, before real physical struggles tend to set in age-wise, we're pretty good at it. We really are pretty Mm -hmm. good at navigating change. And, you know, you've been in your career or your environment long enough to know what types of changes usually come and to have some practice and have built what I call Mm -hmm. change competence. Doesn't mean you love it, but you're competent at it. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. like doing your taxes, right? The first few years that you're responsible for doing your own taxes, super stressful. (laughs) And it's not that I think a ton of people 
who aren't in that business think, yay, taxes, but they do think, <laughs> okay, I know how to do this. Yeah. And yeah. that competence makes a big difference. So I think that there's twofold, Maddie. I think you're right that people who are grew up or started their career in the internet age have become early adopters. Like early adopters means adopting something the day of, because a week later, most people are like, yeah, I'll try it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's new in societally. That's new. And I do think that people are building that. I don't, and I think that there's research to back me up. I don't agree that just going through difficult things improves your ability at going through difficult things. We like to say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But in my professional and personal experience, what doesn't kill you makes you miserable. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and without telling me who, let me ask you, do you each off the top of your head know someone who every obstacle they hit is a major obstacle? They're just, everything hard is really hard. Yes, I do know. Okay. So if it was true that going through hard things automatically made us stronger, none of us would know an adult like that. No. Well, my challenge with this particular person is that they, they wind themselves up so much about every little thing. And so I'm, I try because to- Because one of the skills that's a part of navigating change of being resilient is being able to manage <clears throat> discomfort. And- yep managing discomfort in neutral or positive ways. And it sounds like this person may manage discomfort through the repetition of the, the narrative about how difficult it is and that the reactions oh, yeah. they get or the reactions they don't get and then are upset about not getting feed their ability, their desire to distract themselves from the discomfort of having to navigate change. One of the skills that we found in our research that's crucial to being able to navigate change more competently. Again, you can't turn off the loss, distrust, and discomfort because that's your brain's reflexes. It's a way of keeping you safe. But you can do things that turn it down. You can't turn it off, mm -hmm. but you can turn it down. And that ability to turn down those reactions and navigate the change towards your own purpose and goals, that's what resilience is. Resilience is the ability to navigate change and I want to point out, there's an organizational definition that we have of resilience. So everyone who's worked in a company or created a company, this will resonate. Organizational resilience is the ability to navigate change and come through it mission oriented. Mm. And I can give you an example, but how that relates to people is that individual resilience is the ability to navigate change and come through it with intention and purpose, meaning towards your own mission, whatever kind of person you mean to be in this situation. When companies reached out to me just at the beginning of the pandemic, clients reached out to me that I've worked with on navigating change, a bunch, I mean, really like a dozen different business leaders in different fields reached out to me and said, all right, Dr. G, do we close, stay open? Do we keep people in the office, go home? What do yeah. we do? And I think partially they reached out to me because I'm a medical doctor and I understood the infectious yeah. disease part, but more because this was a really big change to navigate. And my answer was actually yeah. the same to everyone, which is, I don't know, but your mission does. Mm. Whatever your mission is answers your fundamental question. And when you can have clarity as an organization around your mission, and when you can have clarity as an individual around your purpose, your goals, it makes navigating change much simpler, not easier, mm. but more straightforward. Mm. 
I'm almost as as you're talking through that, like I I always reflect on my experiences. And for me, I'm <laughs> oddly enough, I feel like it's a contradiction, but I'm a very optimistic person. But I, I feel like I stress a lot. Like my that re- the initial true. like reaction is like, <gasps> is this gonna be okay? What and so it's weird. Like, how do these two coexist? But one thing that I've noticed about myself is that um you were mentioning people's fears of losing jobs. And I remember when I first got out of grad school. Um, and started working full time. It was right around 2008 and the recession in the United States. And so many people were losing jobs. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm this relatively young PhD without a lot of experience. Like, I'm toast. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not going to be employable. And and that was OK. And my, you know, my, my employer kept me on board. And I realized throughout the years that often something would happen and some change. I was like, that's it. I'm going to lose my job. And I remember actually having a conversation with my mom and her saying, but do you know how hard you work? Do you know how much value? Like, why do you panic so much? And I was like, goodness, you know, I'm not really sure. And so I went through some years of that stress and leveling out. And then I realized, you know, and I had lost jobs before. um, And I thought when I did you know, I was okay. And I figured it out. And then I realized that I panicked about it a lot more often than it actually happened. But over the years, I learned um, how to deal with it better. And then I had a kid later in life. And I was like, what do I do with it? (laughs) My levels of stress there were because I didn't know, like, now I got this career, you know, 20 years of experience. I've got it. I've gone through everything. Right. Yeah. But the kid, I'm like, oh, my goodness, you know, like he sneezes. I'm like, do we go to the emergency room? Is he okay? Is he running a fever? Um, And so it's interesting because I think what you were saying, like with being like mission oriented, it's that I think to me, it's always about happiness. It's always about others. It's about this like well-being, which a lot of, I think it's sometimes really fragile and maybe difficult to define. And so I feel like a lot of times, maybe that's why like the optimistic when things threaten that I panic. Um, well, Sonia, you've just described actually the resilience cycle. So I only talked mm-hmm. about the hard part of this cycle, which is, yeah. you hear about <laughs> and then you fear, you feel loss and distrust and discomfort. You know, my, my yeah. baby sneezed. Could they be sick? What would that mean? God forbid what's going on distrust. Did I put the baby to sleep next to an air conditioning unit? Did my, you know, did my partner um, bring an illness home? Did what, what could this be? Distrust. And then, or was that, was that the baby or the cat that sneezed? Like what really happened here? And the discomfort. Um, If I have to bring them to the doctor, that's expensive, or they might make recommendations that I don't agree with, or Mm -hmm. I might have to put my baby through some sort of procedure. Discomfort. Mm -hmm. The next piece is choice. So when you start to panic about work, you know, oh, I I just heard that we're doing a restructuring. (gasps) What does that mean for me? What could I lose? Can I trust that my boss meant it when they said they love what I'm doing and they'd never want me to go? What's going to be uncomfortable about Mm -hmm. that restructuring? As soon as you remember that you have choices, you don't even have to list them or know what they are yet. As soon as you remember, oh, I should think about what choices I have, that engages ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How's that for showing Mm -hmm. off my fancy medical words? (laughs) And it turns down the amygdala in the center of your brain. That's the one that mediates all of that fear reaction, the lost distrust. Yeah. So when you turn that down by just asking, wait, 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 why am I panicking? What choices do I have? What if I lost my job? What do I know about my job? What do I know about me? What do I know about my career and what I've done? Then you list your choices. Okay, I could wait and see what happens. I could reach out for my to my boss for a conversation. I could 
just, you know, open up the computer and look and see what other jobs are available in my field. Just so I know I have choices. Who is it? I want to be in this moment. I want to be somebody who's really committed to our company and to our mission, mm -hmm. or I want to be somebody who keeps their cool, even when there's work struggles. And then you make, you engage with mm -hmm. certain choices that you've listed for yourself based on your goal, right? So yeah. now you're in the upswing of the cycle. The downswing is lost distrust and discomfort. At the bottom, you get to choice. And as soon as you start to choose, you're engaging, which leads you back to the top, which is reunification. It's not reunification with the restructure or reunification with the boss or re it's reunification with your own intention, your own goals. So you did that and it, you had practice and what's more, you noticed that you had practice. And so you got mm -hmm. more confident because you noted your own competence. Then along comes a new change, this small person who's moved into your house, mm -hmm. right? Your, your, <laughs> I like to call your new broke roommate and for whom you are entirely responsible. And your brain says, lost distrust, discomfort, and you still like, okay, my big goal here is to keep my baby safe. So I'm going to figure out what choices I have. But it was harder to turn the amygdala down because you didn't have the confidence and the competence to rely on. This is why when you call me a family doctor who has been taking care of kids for 25 years and also has raised four kids of my own, and I say, oh, yeah, yeah, sneezing totally happens. Pretty much never means anything terrible. It's okay. You go, Okay. All right. I can navigate this with more confidence because building yeah. connections that reaching out to get somebody else's opinion, that's another one of those eight resilient skills. I mentioned managing discomfort, building your connections is another one. And yeah. when your 14 year old sneezes, you will yell, mm. use a tissue. <laughs> Cover you your nose. Even, right, right. But you won't ever even think do we have to go to the emergency room? But you need yeah. some time to build your competence because that builds your confidence. Yeah. So I have a question. Um, this all makes a lot of sense. And I'm wondering if from the perspective of say a manager who's observing their team person is the one, so it's not, it's not me, myself and I, right? But it's somebody else on my team and how can I support that person? Is it reminding them to take a breath and think about choices? Like what, what is not first, not first. So I, I really want to answer your question, Maddie, but I want to really quickly point out the the big mistake that we make about change in leadership. When our folks, our team, our employees, whoever we've hired, whoever we built this business with, when they struggle to navigate change, because it's usually the leader that announces a change, right? It's the manager who says, hey, we're restructuring or hey, new schedule or hey, waste baskets outside your door, whatever. Yeah. When people struggle with the change, when they experience loss, distrust or discomfort, we tend to think either that's a referendum on my leadership. They don't trust me. They don't understand how hard I've worked or know that I only, only have their best interests in mind and I'm only doing what's best for our company. We think, don't they think I'm a good leader? Or, oh my gosh, I knew I wasn't such a good leader. Their struggle with change is not a referendum on your leadership. These are chemical reflexes in their brain. And their struggle with change is not a referendum on their character. Because the other thing managers tend to think is, oh, this person is lazy or obstinate, stubborn. Mm -hmm. Um, not motivated, 
uh, not mission oriented. And that's not true either. It's chemical. So the first thing is to notice that this is natural. This is normal. This isn't you're a bad leader and it isn't they're a bad person. This is normal. It's just their brain trying to keep them alive. Then there are actually, and this is a lot of what our research has been about, strategies that help other people navigate change, that get other people to primarily focus on choice and engagement. You cannot ask of anyone to stop feeling anything. We know that, right? You can't mandate feelings. So don't make it your goal that people will stop feeling loss or distrust or discomfort. You cannot control how hard their brain tries to protect them. Like, Sonia, when something happened at your work, any work ever, that made you afraid for your job, chances were, chances are really high that there was nothing your leader could have done to make your brain not panic about that. Yeah. Because they couldn't control how many times you've been laid off, what your loans and debt looked like, who yeah. was counting on you to bring home whatever money you were bringing home, right? They can't control all the things that make your brain say, whoa, lost, distrust. Yeah. Distrust. But there are things they can do to get you to take one of your game pieces. If you want to think about this circle as like a game board to get you to take at least one of your game pieces and move it forward to choice. Mm -hmm. And what, and the first of those, if you have time for it is empathy. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, Oh, listen, what the opposite of empathy is telling people how they should feel or how they shouldn't feel. There's nothing to be worried about. That's not really helpful. <laughs> Don't be angry. Don't be scared. That's like saying, oh, Maddie, your feelings, they're dumb. You should have different ones. That's not empathy. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm definitely guilty of that with the the person I'm thinking of because um I know I know a lot of it's in her head, right? So I try um, in in my attempts to be empathetic, I actually come out with something like you can do this. Yeah. <laughs> like, so here's here's a belief that I think we have in Western society that I disagree with. I think we have a belief that if you are a good person, expressing empathy comes easily to you. And the truth is that there are seven cognitive barriers to expressing empathy. Come on. Seven cognitive barriers between I am a good person seeing someone going through a hard time and I have found a way to express that in a way that actually makes things easier for them. Seven different barriers. So this isn't, Maddie, because you just don't care enough about this person or you're too easily frustrated by this person. It's none of that. It's you're experiencing the cognitive barrier of dissonance. Their reaction doesn't make sense to you. You genuinely believe, heart of hearts, they're having the wrong emotion. Right. Like you would, if you could, you would gift them with a different perspective. But since you can't do that, I'll give you, I'll give everybody a hack to six of those seven barriers without mm -hmm. listing them all. And that hack is this you matter. So I care about what you're going through. Writing that down. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> if someone in your family, you might say, I love you, so I care about what you're going through. If it's a customer saying you matter feels a little weird, you could say you're valued, so I care about what you're going through. I don't have to agree with you. I don't have to understand it. I can feel like I probably contributed to it, right? I'm the one who said, hey, you have to leave your wastebasket outside the door, and you hate that, and I'm the one who told you that. I can still express empathy. Hey, I, you know, 
you, I care about you or you matter. I care about what you're going through. The seventh barrier, that's when you personally, your own outcomes are so tied with that other person or with the situation that you're having your own feelings about the risk, about the loss and distrust. Mm. And discomfort. This comes up a lot in families, but it comes up in work too, especially for leaders who are really invested in the success because it's their business or because they believe so much in the mission or they're really tied to their work. And so when you are really enmeshed with the outcomes of the situation, it's very difficult to get enough daylight between you and this person to just have empathy for what they're going through because their behaviors or their decisions that come out of how they're feeling impact you as well. And so then just saying you matter. So I care about what you're going through may not sound all that genuine because the look on your face still says loss, distrust, discomfort of my own based on what's happening right here. In that situation, if your job is to express empathy, then the best thing you can do is remember that although some of the roots of your tree are entwined with this person's roots, you have some on the other side of you. Lean on those. Go to your colleague who isn't impacted by this, your business mentor, your somebody else, your partner, whatever, and say, ah, lost distress, discomfort, <laughs> so that you can come yeah. back to this person and be like, hey, you're valued and I care about what you're going through. It's just, it's hard. It's hard work. Right? It is. It's but empathy hard. is one tool that you have. It may not be a tool that you have by the 78th time that you've heard the same problem from someone. So here's something else that you can do to really move people into choice. And I'm not gonna take you through, I mean, this is work I do with companies that can take hours, but this one, I think you could also take away something really useful in just a minute. And that is, if you wanna remind someone to turn on the thinking part of their brain and move into choice, rather than saying, well, you have choices, what are they? Do this, say, hey, around this, one choice I'd like to ask you about is, do you wanna do it this way or this way? Giving them any choice gets them into their thinking brain Mm -hmm and turns down the amygdala. So you might say to them, hey, listen, I hear your frustration about that client. Do you wanna get back to them copying me on that response or forward it to me afterwards? You, and right, so very small choices. You might, it's not yeah, to say- about the toddler choice that you wanna- Yes, do you wanna wear the blue shirt or the red shirt? Not, do you wanna get dressed because then you'll have a naked toddler. Yeah. So in that same way, but, but what you're doing there is what you really, want to do because you, you can't put it on right. them to figure it out in that instant either. Right. So you're really working with their neurochemistry when you give them that toddler choice, maybe don't call it that to them. Cause it probably <laughs> sounds pretty patronizing, but in your own head, you're doing exactly the same thing that a parent is doing who needs a kid to stop having a meltdown and actually get dressed. They're like, oh, it feels, looks like you're having some really big feelings. I care about you. So I care about what you're going through. Uh, I know you're excited to get to the zoo. Would you like to wear the red shirt or the blue shirt? So what you're saying is, hey, I know, you know, I care about what you're going through. Remind them of your shared goal. I know you want to have a great relationship with clients. I know that's important to you or whatever the issue is. And then say, would you like to deal with this in an in-person meeting or on a phone call? Or do you want you know, my support in this way or in that way and only offer things where you're totally fine with either option? And mm-hmm. that will turn on the thinking part of their brain. It may not turn down the amygdala as much as you hope it would, but it will turn it down some. Well, it feels like it'll just deflect a little bit or refocus them a little bit away from panicking towards 
Yes, yeah. it absolutely other, turns on this part of the brain that, that mitigates that chemical reaction that yeah. just calms it a little bit. And that will get you closer to your goal, which is for them to be a thinker and not just a reactor. Yeah. So I know we're close to time, of course, um, but I do have a question um, about this because it sounds like, so when we use the word navigate change, um, in my mind, I'm thinking that means we're able to do it because we have a destination, right? We know the goal. And so we understand. So maybe in culture work, it's like, you know, being really transparent about why the change is happening helps people to get on board with the change, for example. Um, do you see that in your work, too? So it's like a kind of a further away goal as opposed to in an in the moment choice. You really cannot be resilient without knowing where you want to end up at the end of it. Yeah. And so it's absolutely crucial. And it's something that is easier at the organizational level than it is for individuals. Because yeah. individuals often have competing priorities. Mm -hmm. Sonia, you mentioned, oh, I have happiness and thinking about others and well-being. And those are great priorities. You have to, in the moment of navigating a change or in the process of navigating a change, decide which one's really germane to this situation. Yeah. And so once you know, you, you really can't navigate a change and end up where you want to be if you haven't given any thought to where you want to be. I don't mean where do you want to be in five years? You know, when you see, yeah. when you walk up to your car and see that there's a parking ticket on the windshield, you hadn't thought before that moment, oh, what's my goal if I get a parking ticket? Yeah. And it may be, it may be, I don't have this $75, so I'm going to have to fight the parking ticket, take as many pictures of where my car was so that I can go in and try and fight the parking ticket because I don't have the $75. Or it might be, yeah, I want that four hours of my life back. I'm just going to pay the $75 right now if because I know if I wait 10 days, it's going to be $120. Yeah. <laughs> so you often have to look at a situation that's like, oh, this is a change I did not want to have to navigate. This is a, a stressor. What am I going to do with this? And then I really suggest that people do take three steps. The first is recognize. And we've been talking about this a lot. Recognize that change is stressful. So don't beat yourself up about the panic feeling that you were describing, Sonia, or the frustration that you have. Because Maddie, when you think about that person who's in your head who struggles with change, you're navigating a change. When you get a phone, when you see a text from them or a Slack message, you're thinking, oh, yes. so you have a change to navigate. So I would say first recognize. Yep, this is stressful. This hard it's supposed to be like, that's just how my brain is wired, but it is and have empathy for yourself. Okay. The second thing is to assign this stress, a label. And by that, I mean, decide, is this stress unavoidable? Is it useful? It's helping you navigate towards a change that you want. I want this promotion. I want this house I'm trying to buy. I want whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. and, and things can be both unavoidable and useful, but is it unavoidable? Whether I want this change or not, I can't ignore the parking ticket. Is it useful? It's helping me get towards a change I want, even though it's stressful. Is it avoidable and useless? If it's avoidable mm -hmm. and useless, walk away, set a boundary. And yeah. walk away. <laughs> but now that you've, now that you've figured out, you've assigned this is either unavoidable or useful or both, then figure out what's your goal and reverse engineer your behavior to get that goal. Well, that is awesome. And of course, of course, we're out of time. Um, 
that sounds like a perfect kind of closing, you know, thought to to wrap us up. Um, but I do want to ask you if you have any other, you know, if there's one thing you want our listeners to remember to take away from this conversation. Um, and that was a good one. So, uh, and there's just I would like, like more I would like to point out that when you notice that the people you're responsible for are struggling to navigate a change, remember that it is before you just barge in with a solution start with empathy and then use that. And this is work that I do with organizations a lot to figure out what's the resistance and, and what fear mm -hmm. is it coming from? That will save you a lot of steps in helping your team navigate whatever's happening, whatever change resistance mm -hmm. they're experiencing. I love it. Sonia, do you have any other, any other thoughts before we wrap up? Nope, I think we should leave on this. There's so Dr. G sh shared so many incredible takeaways with us, things to think about. I have so many notes. Um, okay, thank we, you so much. More questions. So your book, um, remind us of the title, and I assume it's on Amazon. It is. It's called From Stressed to Resilient: How to Handle More and Feel It Less. Love it. Everybody, go buy the book. <laughs> and thank you I so much. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. It's been really fun.